This episode's reading of the Aramaic Targum can be found on my website, The Unexpected Cosmology. I'm excited to premiere my very own Restored Names edition, putting Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, back into the Lord God. And that's the other thing. The bookstore is open. One of the ways you can support this ministry is by picking up your very own copy. I'll leave a link below. For the second time tonight, this is the Diaspora of Yasharel. As you guys know, we are a Torah pursuant community who also holds Messiah as, um, well, Yahushua HaMashiach as our Messiah. And it, I always feel weird having to specify that because it's like, and we also hold Yahushua HaMashiach as our Messiah. Well, that should be a given. I, I should reverse that order. Uh, we believe Yahushua is our Messiah and that he called us to be obedient to the Father's commands, which is something we were just talking about in First Clement beforehand. But tonight we are moving on to the Genesis Targum, specifically chapter 2. We got four verses into chapter 2 last week, and we're not going to be moving into chapter 3 tonight. But I'm going to open this up. I'm going to start reading from chapter 2. It looks like Michael has already dropped the... Uh, the the website or the pdf into there that you guys can follow along i am of course joined by michael tonight and i am always excited to have him here and hear what he has prepared in terms of commentary we'll be passing it back and forth so genesis chapter two from the aramaic targum here we go and the creatures of the heavens and earth and all the hosts of them were completed and yahuwah had finished by the seventh day the work which he had wrought and the ten formations which he had created between the sons, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had performed. And Yahuwah blessed the seventh day more than all the days of the week and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which Yahuwah had created and had will to make. These are the uh, genealogy, uh, the genesis of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahuwah Elohim made the earth and heavens. And all the trees of the field were not as yet in the earth, and all the herbs of the field had not as yet germinated, because Yahuwah Elohim had not made it to rain upon the earth, and man was not to cultivate the ground. But a cloud of glory descended from the throne of glory, and was filled with waters from the ocean, and afterward went up from the earth, and gave rain to come down and water all the face of the ground. And Yahuwah Elohim created man in two formations and took dust from the place of the house of the sanctuary, and from the four winds of the world, and mixed from all the waters of the world, and created him red, black, and white, and breathed into his nostrils the inspiration of life, and there was in the body of Adam the inspiration of a speaking spirit, unto the illumination of the eyes and the hearing of the ears. And a garden from the, from the Eden of the just was planted by the word of Yahuwah Elohim, before the creation of the world, and he made there to dwell the man when he had created him. 
and Yahuwah Elohim made to grow from the ground every tree that was desirable to behold and good to eat, and the tree of life in the midst of the garden, whose height was a journey of 500 years, and the tree of whose fruit they who ate would distinguish between good and evil. And a river went forth from Eden to water the garden, and from thence was separated and became four heads of rivers, of four chief rivers. The name of the first is uh, Fishon, that is it which compasseth all the land of Hindiki, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is choice. There is, is the Bedelcha and the precious stone of Beryls. And the name of the second river is Gitchen. That is it which encompasseth all the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Diglath. That is it which goeth to the east of Athor. And the fourth river is Ferath. And Yahuwah Elohim took the man from the mountain of worship where he had been created and made him dwell in the Garden of Eden to do service in the law and to keep its commandments. And Yahuwah Elohim commanded Adam, saying, Of every tree of the garden eating thou mayest eat, but of the tree whose fruit they who eat become wise to know between good and evil, thou shalt not eat. For in that day that thou eatest, thou wilt be guilty of death. And Yahuwah Elohim said, It is not right that Adam should be sleeping alone. I will make unto him a wife who may be a helper before him. And Yahuwah Elohim created from the earth every beast of the field and every fowl of the heavens and brought them to Adam to see by what name he would call it. And whatever Adam called the living animal, that was its name. And Adam called the names of all cattle and all fowl of the heavens and all beasts of the field. But for Adam was not found as yet a helper before him. And Yahuwah uh, Yahuwah Elohim threw a deep slumber upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs. It was the thirteenth rib of his right side, and closed it up with flesh. And Yahuwah Elohim builded the rib which he had taken from Adam into a woman, and he brought her to Adam. And Adam said, This time, and not again, is woman created from man. Thus, because she is created from me, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This it is fit to call woman, because from man she was taken. Therefore a man shall leave and be separate from the house of the bed of his father and of his mother, and shall uh, associate with his wife, and both of them shall be one flesh. And both of them were wise, Adam and his wife, but they were not faithful or truthful in their glory. All right, that concludes the reading of Genesis chapter 2 from the Aramaic Targum, handing it over to Michael for commentary. Mic check. Am I good? You're good. Perfect. Awesome. All right. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Um, it's Genesis is so loaded. It really is. I, I know we were joking that we were struggling to come up with stuff in James because it's just so straightforward and simple. But Genesis is so deep, and I'm I'm very glad that we're going through it slowly. But um, that being said, I have a lot of notes, just like I'm sure Noel does as well. Um, so I'm going to start off on verse 6 so I'm going to read the KGV to start off there it says um, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground and then in the Targum of course you know, Palestinian Targum is way different so it says but a cloud of glory descended from the throne of glory and was filled with waters from the ocean and afterward went up from the earth and gave rain to come down and water all the face of the ground 
this I'm gonna make the case that this was wisdom again um, Sirach 24 4 says I wisdom dwelt in high places and my throne was in a pillar of a cloud and then wisdom of Solomon I forgot the chapter but uh, it says give me wisdom that sitteth by the throne and reject me not among thy children send her out of the holy heavens and from the throne of thy glory that being present she may labor with me that I may know what is pleasing unto thee so wisdom dwelt in high places her throne was in a pillar of cloud and then it says that cloud sitteth by the throne and then the palestinian says a cloud of glory descended from the throne of glory and filled the waters with heaven um, some other passages that doesn't, doesn't insinuate wisdom but it talks about the pillar of the cloud exodus 13 says and the lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way um, Nehemiah says, and with, Nehemiah 9 says, and with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night. Um, and then Psalms 105 says, he spread a cloud for a covering and fire to illuminate by night. So KGV just says a mist. If the Palestinian is correct, it's a cloud of glory. I think it might be wisdom if that's true. Um, number seven, I'm going to read the KGV as well. And the Lord got, or Yahuwah formed man of the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Palestinians way different again. So, and the Lord God, Yahuwah, created man in two formations and took dust from the place of the house of the sanctuary. That's interesting. And from the four winds of the world and mixed from all the waters of the world and created him red, black, and white and breathe into his nostrils the inspiration of life. And there was in the body of Adam the inspiration of a speaking spirit unto the illumination of the eyes and the hearing of the, of the ears. Way different than the KGV. Um, Cross-reference, Ezekiel 18. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. But the important part, the soul who sins will die. So... Um, he formed man out of the dust, breathed the life into him. A man became a living soul. It's kind of showing you the circle, the circle of life, and the reason why we need the, we need the Messiah. <clears throat> okay, so I was going to lead off with this, but I thought this fit better around here since I explained it. And I'm sure Noel's going to talk about this because this is he's talked about this on plenty of a Thursday show. But the difference, the differences between the two creation accounts, he'll, he'll probably go into way more detail. I want to do a high summary, so. Um, Genesis 1, and I know Josh is big on this too, so maybe he can you know, comment later. Um, in Genesis 1, other animals are created before humans, while in Genesis 2, humans are created before animals. Um, Genesis 2, 8, 9, and then also next chapter in Genesis 3, we'll get to that next time, they both have trees in the midst of the garden, whereas way down in chapter, chapter 3, 22, again, we'll get to this next time, but I'm just making the case of the two creation accounts, gives the possibility that both trees were planted on the east side of the garden where Adam was originally placed. Um, again, man, in the last chapter, is last in chapter 1, but first in chapter 2. There's different names for God, Elohim in chapter 1, Yahweh Elohim in chapter 2. The style, terminology, and perspective are different. Genesis 2-3 is distinct unit from Genesis 1. What do you guys think about that? Um, some more on that. So... You know, in the first, Adam and Eve are not named. 
God created humankind in God's image and instructed them to multiply and to be stewards over everything else that God had made. In the second narrative, chapter 2, God fashions Adam from the dust and places him in the garden. Adam is told that he can eat freely of all the trees in the garden, except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Subsequently, Eve is created from one of Adam's ribs to be his companion. And I'll talk way more about that. Um, they are innocent and un unembarrassed about their nakedness. So now what, what does Judea, what does rabbinic say? So this I don't agree with, but I wanted to bring this up. Um, they say, you know, the two distinct accounts. So one tries, kind of takes the seminary route, says the first account says male and female created he them, implying simultaneous creation. Whereas the second account states that God created Eve subsequent to the creation of Adam. So the Midrash Rabbah, they reconcile this by stating that Genesis 1, male and female he created him, indicates that God originally created Adam as a hermaphrodite, bodily and spiritually both male and female, before creating the separate beings of Adam and Eve. Not sure I agree with that. I know a blessed man agrees with that. Maybe he can speak up later. Other rabbis suggested, and I know other people have talked about this, other rabbis suggested that Eve and the woman of the first account were two separate individuals, first being Lilith, um, a figure elsewhere in Isaiah described as a night demon. I don't know if I agree with that either, but throwing it out there. What do you guys think of this? Two separate creation accounts, dip, different perspectives of the same account? What say you? I, I'm sure we'll have a lively discussion about that. So, okay, so I thought this was a cool word study. Um, this is my last part, but it's long. Um, so the Hebrew word, it, so I'm going to talk about Adama versus Adam. So the Hebrew word Adama means land or ground or soil. It's related to the to the word Adam, which means man or mankind. So of course, Adam is also used as the proper name of the first man, capital A, Adam. So land, ground, or soil, first man. We came from the soil, right? So most scholars believe that the words Adama, Adam, and Edom, interesting, stem from a root word with the basic meaning of red. So the word Adama could then be more literally translated red ground. And the name of Adam could could be said to mean red man or man from the red dirt. So not only is Adam formed from Adama and named after Adama, but he is now assigned, and we'll get to this, with working the Adama and cultivating the plants that come from it. That's pretty remarkable. Um, <clears throat> so again, uh, it, it ties into this, but you know I don't mean to get ahead in chapter three, but it still ties to this. Um, and we can always talk about that next next time. But after Adam sins, hopefully I'm not spoiling it with, <laughs> with anybody, but eating from the tree of knowledge, Yah issues a curse. So if you recall, the curse is directed not at Adam, but at Adama, the ground. So curse be the ground because of you. By your toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it sprout for you but your food shall be grasses of the field. By the sweat of your brow shall you get bread to eat until you return to the ground from which you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you shall return. So what we're, we're witnessing here is a dual curse. Again, I apologize that I am speaking ahead here. Just It fits with this correlation between Adama and Adam. Um, Adam is now forced to work the land in sweat and difficulty. In the Garden of Eden, he can simply pick the fruits from the tree. Now he will have to contend with thorns, thistles, backbreaking labor. So, and also it's, it's interesting to note that Adam's curse was accompanied by an order of exile. So Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. 
and to till the soil or the Adama from which he was taken. And later we'll get to it. Similar story with Cain and Abel. Um, he says, your brother blood cries out for me from the ground or Adama. There you shall be cursed. The ground, um, if you till the soil or Adama, it shall no longer yield its strength. And it says you should become a ceaseless wonder on the earth. So the same punishment. So difficulty of agricultural labor. Uh, he's exiled, not, not being allowed to stay in the place one was in. And in Cain's case, he, he has an inability to remain in any place for a reasonable time. And finally, in the same context, the Shema. Everybody knows the beginning of the Shema. The second part, if you follow the commands that I adjoin upon you this day, I will give you rain for your land and season. You shall gather in new grain, wine, and oil. Take care not to be lured away to serve other gods. And bow to them, for the Lord's anger will flare up, and there will be no rain, and the ground, or Adamah, will not yield its produce. And you will soon perish from the good land, or Adamah, that the Lord is assigning to you. So even in the land of Israel, the Adam-Adamah connection is alive and well. If we do not obey Yah, we are threatened with both difficult agricultural conditions and exile. You know, a lot of talk also about, you know, food shortages going on now because we're not obeying. <clears throat> okay, so to wrap this up. So the study in Adam on Adam makes me also think about the fruits of the Spirit. So um, the fruits don't come easy, right? We have to work on that. We have to till our own soil on the ground. I know in my case, in my life, I had no fruits at the beginning. <laughs> you know, and then I, I gradually start receiving them. I, I start receiving, I start getting better with patience and love and kindness. It's a long process, but as Noel said in First Clement, and I also agree, once we're resurrected, it'll be written on our hearts, and we'll just do all the fruits naturally with no struggles. Kind of like Adam, right? He's just picking the fruit. He doesn't have to till it. It's amazing. Um, and then furthermore in the Torah, in the seventh year, we are told to give the land a break. Everybody knows this one, Leviticus 25. It says, but in the seventh year, this should be a Sabbath of complete rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You are not to sow your field or prune your vineyard. So it kind of reminds me, <clears throat> it's a foreshadowing. Sabbath, seventh day of the week, we rest, millennial rain rest. Um, we work the six days. Is this is this also foreshadowing us living back in the garden where in, we don't have to work. We don't till the ground in the seventh year and in, we're just supposed to eat of it or whatever falls, right? We're not tilling it. I wonder if that's another foreshadow of the garden. Okay, finally, last last little sentence, paragraph here. So, <clears throat> totally different than Adam and Adam, Adam. In Genesis 1, the characteristic of the word for Yah's activity is bara. We talked about this last week, where he created. But in Genesis 2, he uses the word yetzar, meaning fashioned. So when he created Adam, he fashioned him. So that word, in context, is somewhat similar to a potter fashioning a pot from a clay. So... Yah breathes his own breath into the clay and he becomes a nefesh, a word meaning life, vitality, living personality. He shares the nefesh with all creatures, but the text describes this life-giving Yah only in relation to man. So I'll just finish with a cross-reference, Jeremiah 18, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel, and it was pleased the potter to make it. I thought this was cool. Is this signaling a possible two creation accounts where he, in the first, he, he just he made man and woman. But then in the second one, he fashioned them 
in a potter of a clay, Adam and Eve. I thought that was cool, that it's, it seems it was different. Genesis 1, he barabbed them. Genesis 2, he fashioned them. Potter clay. That's all I got for the first part. I have a long second part, and I sure know it does too, but I'll pass it off to him. Contradictions. Rome is trying to control your mind on paper. Get out now while there's still time. LOL. The Bible supposedly begins that way, doesn't it? With one big, fat, juicy contradiction. Not really, but let's just go with the flow. You may have noticed it for yourself. Actually, Michael talked about it, so... Uh, no, no thunder or lightning, uh, uh, no thunder stolen there. There are seemingly two different versions of the same creation account in Genesis. Are we looking at two different accounts or one account that contradicts each other? Uh, you know, the scholars will tell you, uh, the, <laughs> the really sassy scholars, that, you know, there were, you know, multiple Hebrew creation accounts and Moses couldn't decide which one. Or they'll tell you that, you know, Moses only wrote one and that at some other point in history, uh, probably after Babylon, they added the second one in there. Uh, so we will dub this the two creation contradiction. Again, we're just going with the flow for this for the moment here. The first creation account could be found in chapter one, as you guys know. The second creation account immediately follows what we just read in chapter two. Compare the two and nothing lines up quite right. Uh-oh. Sounds like the editor couldn't quite decide which Hebrew narrative he should go with, as the scholars will tell us, seeing as how there are two creation accounts, but not really. That's what we're often told, though. Well, what I love about the Aramaic Targum is that it clears all that up and then some. It reads very different than the Masoretic, obviously. If you guys are lining up side by side, you know, flipping through your King James frantically and seeing why it's, it speaks differently, the, the Aramaic Targum just clears things up. I'll, I'll cover some of that tonight. But before doing so, let's simmer in the tension of contradictions a little bit longer. The account in Genesis chapter 1 offers six days of creation. Michael went over some of this. Whereas the second account has depleted its budget and provides us with little to nothing as days go. That's not good. Now follow along with the events of the creation week. Elohim creates light, day one. The second day is wholly devoted to the hammering out of the firmament. Water is separated. Dry land appears. Evening and morning. Days one and three are complete. Then he brings forth plants, followed by the sun and the moon, and the luminaries of the heavens, which is impressive, uh, considering that herbage grew before the sun arrived. He then fills the seas and the sky with life, next the land animals, and finally men and women, or man and woman, I would say plural, uh, arrive at the same time. Days four through six are complete. On the seventh day, Elohim rests, end of the creation week, or is it? Because then we get to chapter 2 and it starts all over again. And, you know, so as if to confuse an already established matter, Genesis 2 delves right back in and follows a different order. Elohim here identified as Yahuwah. Now, in the, in the Aramaic Targum, I would, I would argue that he is identified in chapter 1, but in the Hebrew Masoretic, chapter 1, he's just Elohim. We don't know if this is the Demirge or not. We don't know who this is. All of a sudden, Yahuwah shows up in chapter 2 at the second creation account. He's never mentioned in the first. Just to point that out, I think that's interesting. Um, but here I, in the Aramaic Targum, they, I, they clearly they point out it's the same 
it's the same flow. It's the same being in chapter one and chapter two. So um, here identified as Yahuwah, he doesn't create men and women in chapter two. From the dust, he creates Adam alone. Many commenters will quickly tell you that Adam was created before there was any plant life, which seems to contradict chapter one, but that's also misdirection as the Masoretic makes clear, if you read even the Masoretic, that the fields had yet to be tilled, and that's what it's referring to. Still, there is yet one more noted divergent ahead, as Yahuwah personally plants a garden and places the man there to work it. It is only after placing the man in the garden that Yahuwah creates animals. I thought animals were created on the fifth day. Why are they created on the day? Why are they created after Adam? Not on the day after, but just afterwards, for him as helpers. Wait, had it the animals already be, I'm so confused. I thought the animals were already created. You will recall that man and woman were created together in the first account, as Michael pointed out. But here we are treated to another variant. Adam meanders among the animals, created after him, mind you. Then he has to go name the animals. How long do you think that took? Guys, that didn't that, that had to be more than 24 hours. That had I mean <laughs> I, I wish we had all the original names of the animals, but there's there's a there's an old um, uh, 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 I'll I'll tell one of my amazing jokes. Actually, this comes from uh, Jim Gaffigan, and he would he, part of his routine. He would talk about Adam naming the animals, and he started out going like Tyrannosaurus Rex, you know, uh, Brachiosaurus, and then as he's getting tired, he's like, uh, dog, uh, cat, you know. But it's a it, the point is is that it's a long process to name all these animals. All right, so so the woman hasn't even shown up yet at this point. Um, let's see what else. And now you, and now you've been caught up to speed. So what's going on? So we'll, we'll delve into this. And of course, Michael already has as well. All right. Starting at Genesis chapter two, verses five through six. And we read about, uh, Michael did a great job talking about the, the Ruach HaKadosh. I'm not going to be covering that. I'm really glad he did. Anytime I see anything where I'm like, I think that's the, Ru the, the Ruach HaKadosh. I hope he covers it, and he usually does. All right, so this is what I, I found on this idea of the cloud of glory uh, descending from the throne of glory. The first comes from 3rd Baruch. I know I quote from this a lot, but it's one of those books that very few people have read, and it's phenomenal. And Baruch is in the, I think he's in the fifth heaven here. I could be wrong. Oh, the fourth heaven. He's in the fourth heaven, and this is what he saw. And I saw a monotonous plain, and in the middle of it, a pool of water. And there were in it multitudes of birds of all kinds, but not like those here on earth. But I saw a crane as great as great oxen, so a very big crane. And all the birds were great beyond those in the world. And I asked the angel, what is this plain? And what, what is the pool? And what are the multitudes of birds around it? And the angel said, listen, Baruch. So pay attention to what he says here. He says, listen, the plain which contains in it the pool and other wonders is the place where the souls of the righteous come when they hold converse, living together in choirs. But the water is that which the cloud, which the clouds receive and rain upon the earth, and the fruits increase. And I said again to the angel of Yahuwah, but what are these birds? And he said to me, they are those which continually sing praise to Yahuwah. That's a th stunningly beautiful picture right there. And I'll explain why in a second. 
And I said, Adonai, and how do men say that the water which descends in rain is from the sea? And he telling you about the, the rain cycle there, which is kind of interesting. So apparently back then they they believed that the, the rain came from the seed, and which it does. It's part of the process. And the angel said, the water which descends in rain, this also is from the sea. So he's saying that's true. What you've heard is true. Um, and from the waters upon the earth. So they come from the waters of the earth and sea. But that which stimulates the fruits is from the later source. Know therefore, uh, he's talking about the water in the heaven. Know therefore henceforth that from this source is what is called the dew of heaven. So he's referring back to Genesis. The, the dew of heaven comes from this source. Now, one of the questions I had here is why, what does he mean when he says the souls of the righteous come when they sing praises uh, to Yahuwah? Uh, is he saying that we literally physically are up there in heaven? And I would say, no, it's keep in mind that Baruch, you know, one of his roles was in the temple. And so this was something that was very personal to him. And so the idea was, is that on the earth, you know, on earth as it is in heaven, on the earth, when people would assemble to sing praises to Yahuwah and worship him, that that was, I guess, verbalized, vocalized up there in the pool of water. What's really touching here is that there are birds constantly there singing praises to Yahuwah. Now think about this, that every single morning, what do the birds do? They start singing. Just as the rooster crows, and I've been over before and showing scripture that the rooster crows when I believe the, um, uh, the gates of heaven are being opened and they're receiving our prayers at that time, at the sunrise. The roosters are announcing this. I mean, it, like you hear the rooster crow, get up and pray. Um, and the, the birds, they have no choice either. They, they praise Yahuwah. Like if we're not going to praise them, the birds will. But I want you to pay attention to the most important thing here is that the water itself, this pool of water is what he's saying is, is that the stimulation of, of fruit on the earth and, you know, a plenty comes from heaven. It doesn't come from any other source, but from heaven and what feeds it praising Yahuwah. So I'm going to continue this, this line of thought. This comes from Exodus 20 in the Aramaic Targum. Now, if we go through this series, it's going to be a long time before we get to Exodus 20 again, so we'll all forget about this passage, and it'll be fresh when we get there, I'm sure. But this is what it's talking about, uh, feeding the earth. And of course, this is the Ten Commandments. Sons of Yasharel, my people, ye shall not be thieves, nor companions, nor partakers with thieves. There shall not be seen in the congregations of Yasharel a thievish people. And we, of course, read this in First Clement as well about stealing from Yah uh, by wanting his rewards but not being obedient to his will. That is equated to stealing from him. That your sons may not arise after you to teach one another to have part with thieves. Pay attention to this line right here. For on account of the guilt of theft, famine coming forth upon the world. And then the next command, sons of Yasharel, my people, ye shall not testify against your neighbors a testimony of falsehood, nor be companions or partakers with those who bear false witness, nor shall there be seen in the congregation of Yasharel a people who testify of falsehood. Neither shall your sons arise after you to teach one another to have part with those who testify falsehood. Why? 
But pay attention. For because of the guilt of false testimony, the clouds go up and the rain cometh not down and dryness cometh upon the world. So false testimony and dealing from Yah both cause drought on the earth. According to 3rd Baruch, what is it that causeth the rain to come down? Praising Yah, giving true testimony. That's kind of interesting. And then we see the cloud of glory in the wilderness. And this is what we read in Exodus 24, 16. And the glory of, uh, of Yahuwah, Yahuwah's Shekinah abode upon the mountain of Sinai, and the cloud of glory covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called uh, to Moshe from the midst of the cloud. Again, in Exodus 40, there are so many passages. I'm not going to read through them all. You guys will all know what I'm talking about. Just giving a little bit of a uh, little uh, appetizer or a sample here. When the cloud rose up from over the meeting place, the sons of Yasharel would set out in all their travels. If the cloud did not rise, they would not set out until the day that it rose. For the cloud of the glory of Adonai was upon the meeting place by day, and there was a vision of fire in it by night before the eyes of the entire sons of Israel and all their travels. Exodus 40 uh, from the Targum. And then... Oh, here's a here's a fun little passage from the Aramaic Targum as well. Uh, this is in Numbers 22, so this is really far off if we ever get to this. This is a really fun passage. Ten things were created after the world had been founded at the coming of the Sabbath between the suns. All right, so I believe it's talking about the first creation week there. The manna, it's saying that the manna was created. The well, the rod of Moshe, uh, that's the scepter that I believe Yahusha uh, rules with, was the rod of Moshe. The diamond, the rainbow, the cloud of glory, the mouth of the earth, the writing of the tables of the covenant, the demons, that's interesting, and the speaking ass. And in that hour, the word of Yahuwah opened her mouth and lifted her to speak, and she said to Balaam, and then starts talking. So the the donkey is speaking to Balaam in this passage, Numbers 22, 26 through 28. But anyways, the, the cloud of glory was there that uh, creation week, which we have seen in this passage. Just cross-referencing. Now, Genesis 22, 3 through 4 says this. Um, and Abraham rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and took two young men with him, Eliezer and Ishmael and Isaac his son, and cut the small wood and the figs and the palm, which are provided for the whole burnt offering, and arose and went to the land, which Yahuwah had told him. Obviously, this is the sacrifice of Yitzhak. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and beheld the cloud of glory fuming on the mount, and it was discerned by him afar off. Now, the one thing I wish I had done, I was frantically trying to find it while Michael was speaking because I can't believe I overlooked this. But in the book of Jasher, it talks about leading up to the flood that there was a great drought on the whole earth. Why? Because of the wickedness. And so even in the book of Jasher, it's identifying that because of the wickedness, like, like Yah is sending them a lack of rain before he sends them a lot of rain. And he was hoping by sending them very little rain that they would repent. But because of that, they, um, they saw the lack of rain and they thought he will never flood the world and they didn't repent and so on and so forth. But you see that connection with, you know, the lack of uh, righteousness on the earth creates uh, the droughts and so on that we see. All right, moving on to chapter two, verse seven. I'm trying to catch up to Michael here. So here is what we read. And Yahuwah Elohim created man in two formations. I will talk a little bit about maybe my thoughts on that. 
and took dust from the place of the house of the sanctuary and from the four winds of the world and, and mixed from all the waters of the world and created him red, black, and white and breathed into his nostrils the inspiration of life. And there was in the body of Adam the inspiration of a speaking spirit and the illumination of the eyes and the hearing of the ears. All right, so what I, what I think is, is what they're talking about here, the red, black, and white, is what we would call melanin. You know, we all have, you know, what basically what makes us white, black, red, so on and so forth, that he had it all. I do agree with uh, Michael's um, interpretation of red uh, with Adam. I think that's spot on. And I also never thought of Lilith in this context. The, that was the first I ever thought about that when Michael brought that up. And I was like, wait a second here. The two formations, what if what if that is? I don't know. I mean, you if you read Legend of the, the Jews, it's all about Lilith. I mean, Lilith was like, on the scene early on, bad news. And keep in mind, uh, I don't, I, Jasher, I'm gonna have to, no, Jubilees, I'm gonna have to ref, uh, look back at this again. Jubilees stresses that Eve came a lot later on down the road. She wasn't there the creation week. My personal view is that these two formations are two types of people. All right. So, and this gets back into the two creation contradiction. Uh, on the sixth day, and it's okay if people disagree with me on this. This isn't like, you know, you're out of the group. You know, it's it just, I've changed my opinion on this, and this is where I'm at, that he literally created people on the sixth day. I don't know how many, maybe a hundred, maybe a million, maybe a billion. I don't know. He created people. I think that this, I think that they were different from the Adamites. I think that this, or what we even call the Sethites and also the Canaanites. And this explains a lot of the things we see with like the, uh, I love talking about the hobbits, you know, the, the little people. It explains them. It explains the, uh, perhaps the Neanderthals. Even though you talk to like a young with Christians, they're like, no, Neanderthals are just Cro-Magnon. They're the same. You know, I, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. I don't know why they say they're different. But, you know, they, they talk about how they, they're very, they were very different. So I just, I think that there's a very real possibility that there was, there was people on the earth and that Adam was created specially to be a priest over them. What was he a priest over if there were no people? What was his function? He was a priest over people. And I'm going to make more of that case in a, a future chapter, talking, referring to Ezekiel and how Lucifer was once uh, in his position, and it seems he lost it, and then Adam was created. And now, of course, we have the high priest, Meshelzedek, our Messiah, Yahusha, who is in that place for us as well. Um, hallelujah to that. So, again, it, it may be referring to Adam and Hava as well, but I, 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 think, I think that's what it means with the two formations. Now, also, what's interesting here is that it says, and he took the dust from the place of the house of the sanctuary. All right. What is that a reference to? It's a reference to Mount Zion. So this is also what we're going to see in a few verses, uh, what's also called the mountain of worship. And I love the fact that the Aramaic Targum says the mountain of worship because that lines up with all Edemic literature. Where did Adam go after he was kicked out of Eden? He was taken to the mountain of worship, which is Mount Zion. I'll talk about that more later tonight. Uh, let's see, what else can I cover? I think that that's, I think I'm caught up to Michael. Um, so back to you, Michael. All right, yes. Um, so yeah, I'm going, this would have been my biggest part, but I think it is good that we 
Um, keep talking about the same passage. I'm only going to talk about 8 and 9 now, but it's a lot. So, um, <clears throat> the Garden of Eden. So, the KGV says, And Yahuwah planted a garden eastward in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. So, some stuff I found on Eden. Um, the root word for Eden co comes from the word fertility. So, it comes from a root meaning fertility. That makes perfect sense to me. So, also, um, it is grammatically incorrect to translate Gan Beden as Garden of Eden, but the Garden in Eden. So I know a lot of people have said that as well. So it's the Garden within Eden. Um, a couple other cross-references about Eden in the Bible. So Isaiah 51.3 says, Indeed, Yahuwah will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And in her wilderness, he will make like Eden and her desert like the Garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. And then also Ezekiel 36 says, Thus says Yahuwah, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated, instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say, This desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. So what are we learning here? It's, Wasteland is, is dryness, it's drought. He, once he refreshes it and makes everything new, it will be like the Garden of Eden. The, the fertility, the, the, the two trees, the fullness, um, beautiful thing. Um, a little bit off topic, but the Cave of Machpelah um, in the West Bank city of Hebron is the burial place of the matriarchs and the patriarchs. So Adam, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah. But according to some tradition, it's also the entrance to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were buried. I'm not saying that's true, but that's what I found also in the Garden of Eden. Um, the Babylonians called the lush green land from which the water flowed Edunah, so similar to Eden, E-D-U-N-U. -U. Um, okay, so now I'm up for my big part on 8 and 9. Paradise in the New Testament and the Garden of Eden, is it the same thing? I initially going into this thought it was. I'm not now. I'm not so sure. I think they're in the same location. I just think they're separate. But I'm still studying it out. So, 3857 Paradisios, Greek definition: a park, a garden, a paradise. It's used three times. Luke 23, the man on the cross, and he said, "Yeshua, remember me when you come into your kingdom." Yeshua said to him, "Amen. I tell you, today you shall be with me in paradise." Everybody knows that one. Uh, Paul verse 10. 2 Corinthians 12. I know such a man, whether in the body or outside the body. I don't know. Yah knows. He was caught up into paradise and heard words too sacred to tell, which a human is not permitted to other, utter. And then finally, and I totally forgot about this, this verse when we did a Revelation study, but Revelation 2, the church of Ephesus, starting on 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So those are the three times paradise is mentioned. It's pretty cool, though. All right, so in the Hebrew, 6508, Pardis, a preserve or park, also talked about three times in the Old Testament. So the word Pardis occurs three times in the Hebrew Bible, but always in context other than a connection with Eden. In the Song of Solomon, Chapter 4, thy plants are an orchard, or parties, of pomegranates, with pleasant fruits, 
Campire with spikenard. And I know, I think Enoch talks about pomegranates being an actual tree of life. I don't know if that's true, but that's I think that's what Enoch says. But pardis, or orchard, is the same word. Ecclesiastes 2, 5. I made me gardens and orchards, pardis, and I planted trees in all of them, all kinds of fruits. So very similar fruits in an orchard, but not technically the Garden of Eden. And in Nehemiah 2, 8. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's orchard, or parties, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which he appertained to the house and for the wall of the city. So in these examples, parties clearly means orchard or park, but in the apocalyptic literature, in the Talmud, paradise gains its associations with the Garden of Eden, also in the New Testament, as I talked about earlier. So what do you guys think about this? Um, some other books on the Garden of Eden. In the Apocalypse of Moses, so Adam and Eve are expelled from paradise after having been tricked by the serpent. Later, after death of Adam, the Archangel Michael carries the body of Adam to be buried in paradise, which is in the third heaven. Again, I'm quoting Legend of the Jews. I think Noel mentioned it during his commentary. Again, I'm not saying I believe this, but it's very interesting. So, Legend of the Jews, and Zen talks about this a lot as well. Um, they talk about two gardens of Eden. So, Beyond Paradise, which we talked about, is a higher Garden of Eden, where the Most High is enthroned. Explain, he explains the Torah to its inhabitants. The higher Garden of Eden contains 310 worlds and is divided into seven compartments. The compartments are not described, though it is implied that each compartment is greater than the previous one and is joined based on one's merit. Um, chapter 2 of it describes a lower Garden of Eden. So the Tree of Knowledge is a hedge around the Tree of Life, which is so vast that it would take a man 500 years to traverse a distance equal to the diameter of the trunk. So from beneath the trees flow all the world's waters in the form of four rivers. We're going to be talking a lot about that later. Um, after the fall of man, the world was no longer irrigated by this water. While in the garden, though, Adam and Eve were served, meat by dishes by angels, and the animals of the world understood human language. Jubilees talks about that too, that they spoke Hebrew. Um, they respected mankind as God's image, and they feared Adam and Eve. Um, okay, so do I want to read anything else here? Okay, so what do you guys think about this? Garden of Eden, Paradise. I th I'm, what I'm thinking is they're both in the same location, but they're two separate things. What do you guys think? Um, one more, verse 9. I have a lot in the Four Rivers. We'll get to it next time. But... Verse 9, so, out of the ground in the KGB, out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So, in the Palestinian, way, way different, not worse. <laughs> and you who had made to grow from the ground every tree that was desirable to behold and good to eat. And the tree of life in the midst of the garden, whose height, tallness, his height, was a journey of 500 years. That's amazing. And the tree of whose fruit they ate would distinguish between good and evil. Wow, that's huge. So the only thing I want to say in this is the word knowledge, so, you know, tree of knowledge, refers to, at least in the Hebrew, dayaf, refers to technical knowledge, the kind of knowledge that one must be taught and learned. So what do you guys think about that? Tree of life, midst of the garden, tree of knowledge, taught and learned. Didn't, didn't Enoch say, you know, the fallen angels taught men a bunch of things. Is there a connection there? 
Again, like I said, I have a lot on the rivers, but I'll land off the null eight nine. I just did. So getting back to the two creation contradiction, uh, when I when I look at the the second chapter, I'm looking at Eden as a specific separate location from the Earth. Now, maybe at some some way it was connected to the Earth. I'm not saying it wasn't, um, but the the creation of the animals afterwards would have been a special creation just in Eden. Now, here's here's everything that my conclusion on where Eden is in comparison to paradise. Now, my entire life I was raised to say that the flood destroyed Eden. Well, that's a problem because Eden still exists. Now, the, the Greek has taken it out. This is what the, the Greek Revelation chapter 2 verse 7 says. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the, the Ruach saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give the, to eat the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of Elohim. Well, we went over this in our Hebrew Revelation study. Oh, if I can find it now, I just lost it. This is to uh, contextually, what is this to? This is, oh, Ephesus, uh, the church of Ephesus. This is what it says in the Hebrew uh, confidential councils of Yahuwah. Whosoever has ears must hear what the Ruach says to the assembly. Whosoever overcomes will eat for the tree of life, which is in the Garden of Eden. So according to the Hebrew document, the Garden of Eden still exists, and it's up in heaven. And I, I think right there, that just separates. It just clarifies for us the the two, two creation contradiction. Eden is clearly a unique, separate creation from uh, the earth, and I'll get more into that right now. So the first one here is, I'm going to actually go there. I'm going to quote from this Chronicles of Jeremiah. Um, take this with a grain of salt, but this is, you know, it's, it's an old book from the ancients, and it's worthy to point out. This is what he says in, I think this is chapter two. Seven things were created prior to the creation of the world, the law, Repentance, the throne of glory, the Garden of Eden, Gehenna, uh, the site of the temple and the name of the Messiah. And for all these things, proof is to be found in scriptures. That's what he says. Here's another in interesting one. Um, so, again, the, the Garden of Eden is, he would place this in paradise as well. Here, this, this is what we found, find in the religion of the Jews. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, 2,000 years before the heaven and the earth, seven things were created. The Torah written with black fire on white fire and lying in the lap of Elohim. Which is interesting, the idea that the Torah is lying in his lap. That's the same idea as what we see with like the kings of, of Judah. or they were Like Solomon, he was supposed to have the Torah on his lap as he conducted business and uh, gave his judgments. Uh, David as well, and so we see that with Yahuwah. Uh, the divine throne created in the heavens, which later was over the heads of the Hayot. Paradise on the right side of Elohim, Gehenna on the left side. That's interesting. The celestial sanctuary directly in front of Elohim, uh, having a jewel on its altar given with the name of the Messiah. And so, oh, and a voice that cries aloud, return ye children of men. So, so what he's describing here is that there is the throne of the Most High that faces the, the, uh, the sanctuary, the temple in heaven, 
which has the name of the Messiah on it. And on his right and on his left is Paradise and Gehenna. Now, people would ask, well, why are you, why would he put Gehenna in there? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it actually makes a lot of sense. As I pointed out before, anytime a king is going to build a palace or a castle or whatever, he's going to put a, a He's going to put a dungeon in there because he knows people are going to rebel against him. You put this in and say, look, if you rebel against me, this is where you end up. This is your inheritance. Or you could have the inheritance on the right hand, which is paradise. All right. Um, so moving on, getting back to I'm going to go to uh, verse 15. And Yahuwah Elohim took the man from the mountain of worship where he had been created and made him dwell in the Garden of Eden to do service in the law and keep its commandments. I absolutely love this verse. There's so much in this. First of all, we see that where he was taken was the mountain of worship. This is Mount Zion. Now, uh, Michael did quote from, I think, the Revelation of Moshe, which is interesting because I think in that book it does say, it's a little confusing because it does say that Adam was uh, buried in paradise, which is, um, which actually goes against what the book of Adam and others say that he was buried in uh, the mountain of worship. I kind of think it's a play on what we see here. Uh, the, the, almost the dualism, the, as above, so below, like he was buried in heaven, uh, in paradise and the earth simultaneously as, uh, rather than Sheol. But anyways, um, the mountain of worship. All right. So this is where we, what we see is in most accounts, is that when Adam died, he was buried in the the cave of treasures there, which is at the base of the mountain of worship, which is also Mount Zion. And when Noah went on the ark, and I, oh man, I wish I had this passage in front of me. I don't think I do. Maybe I do, but let's see what I have. Uh, Noah was instructed to take his body. Oh yeah, this comes from the book of Adam. You can look this up for yourself. Uh, at, um, Noah was instructed to take his body onto the ark, and as soon as he was done, he was to bury him back in the mountain again, the same place, which is interesting because where do we see Shem and Noah go? According to the writings of Abraham and others, we see them going to the, um, we see them going to Mount Zion. This is where Meshelzedek is, who is Shem, when Abraham, you know, meets him. Uh, it's also where Abraham went to school. It's where Yitzhak went to school. It's where Yaakov went to school. They went to Shem's school there. And what's, you know, nerd alert, what really excited me was like a year or two ago, uh, the only thing that hindered my excitement was really looking into the idea, is Israel really the true land of Israel? And I, I've come to the conclusion that it is now. Well, they discovered there at the base of Mount Zion, in the city of David, okay? Not where they say the Temple Mount is. That's, that's, that's for Antonio. That's not the real Temple Mount. They all know where the Temple Mount is. It's where all the archaeological work is done. It's on Mount Zion. They discovered Shem's actual, uh, what remains of his school there. They actually found uh, where Noah made his wine. They found that it was a winery. They found what appeared to be at one time like a huge, strange stone that they didn't know what it was. Well, the Targum will tell us what it is. It was the stone of illumination that came from Eden. That, that really sparked my interest when I saw that. But also notice this, is that where Yahushua was crucified is a place they say the Mount of Skulls, or the Mount of the Skull. I mean, not Skulls, plural, but the Mount of the Skull. Where is that a reference to? It's a reference to Adam. 
the place of where Adam was buried. He was crucified right over that. Well, here's the problem with the official narrative. If you go to Israel today, you will find uh, a, a bus stop right next to what they is, is apparently the, the garden tomb. Well, it's the garden tomb. I don't know if Yahushua was buried there or not. Uh, that's beside the point. That's irrelevant. There's a bus stop there. And which I've been to that bus stop, and I rode on that bus uh, to go down to uh, the dead, uh, the Dead Sea and uh, the Red Sea. But right above it, you can look, and there's this kind of this mount, and they will say, "Well, it kind of looks like a skull." So we think that's the mount of skull. You gotta be kidding me! Like two thousand years have gone by. There's been so much erosion. You got the mud flood. You got all this other stuff. That was not. They did not call that the mount of skull because it looked like a skull. They were referring to Adam, and we've been, and we've shown, we've demonstrated that. Uh, when Yahushua was crucified, shockingly, if you read it in the Hebrew Gospels, he was taken, when Pontius Pilate washed his hands and he was done with them, he had his servants escort Yahushua back to the temple. He was tried all over again by the Sanhedrin. And where was he beaten? It wasn't in Pilate's court. He was beaten in the temple on Mount Zion. They placed a crown of thorns on him there in the temple, in the courtyard, in front of the altar. And uh, and he would have been crucified right there, right outside the temple. He might have been inside the temple. I don't know, but probably right outside at the place of the school where Adam is buried. So that's just taking us back to uh, to that right there. And all right, so let's see what we see here uh, in Legends of the of the Jews again. We see this: the grace and loving kindness. Of Elohim revealed themselves particularly in his taking one spoonful of dust from the spot where in time to come the altar would stand. Uh, this is the the you know the dust from mountain of worship of uh, Mount Zion, which the Targum talks about, saying, I shall take man from the place of atonement. Interesting that he may endure. So think about that. So he specifically, and this is the legends of the Jews, and he's specifically saying where he created this special man, this high priest, he knew that it would be the place of atonement. And then we read in the cave of treasures. And when he rose at full length and stood upright in the center of the earth, he planted his two feet on that spot whereon was set upon up the cross of our redeemer for Adam was created in Jerusalem. Keep in mind, he was not created in Eden. Eve was created in Eden, but Adam was created on Mount Zion. And again, they say here, the cross was on Mount Zion guys. It wasn't where they say the place of the school was. It was on the temple where the actual temple was. Just think about that. That's crazy. We never hear about that. We never learn that. That's a that's a conspiracy. Uh, but he truly was the Passover lamb that they they sacrificed him right there at the temple where they were sacrificing the lamb, not in a different place. All right. Um, okay. The other thing I love about this passage is that it says Adam's purpose was to do service to the law. I can't forget this part. And to keep its commandments. This isn't wishful thinking and part of the translators, by the way. This will, people will, you know, kick and scream at this going, oh, this is, this is, you know, this is a false translation. Well, is it really? Uh, I'm going to actually prove that it's not. The very idea of service to Torah is embedded in the original Hebrew. All right. So, it, in the original Hebrew, it's it, the Masoretic. It says this: Yahuwah placed Adam in gar, in the garden, quote unquote, to cultivate it and keep it, unquote. The two Hebrew words for cultivate and keep are abad and samar. They are usually translated serve and guard. 
when these two words occur together later on throughout Scripture, and they do, they have this meaning and refer either to uh, those in the covenant serving and guarding, obeying Elihim's law and commands, or more often to priests who serve Elihim in the temple and guard the temple from unclean things entering it. So his job was to serve and guard the covenants, the law, and also keeping unclean things from entering the garden. That was his role, and he failed, obviously, miserably, as we see. He let his guard down, and Satan came in. And it wasn't just when Satan came in uh, that he failed. It was when he saw him, he should have been, scoot, be gone. You know, just, you know, take it, whatever he needed, a baseball bat, whatever he could find, and just got him out of there, you know, chased him out. He didn't do that. So he failed miserably. Even before he uh, ate of the fruits, he, he, he failed his job. So we see um, the idea of guarding the temple from unclean things in Ezekiel 44, 14, first Chronicles 23, 32. Throughout numbers, I won't go over all those, but you could, you know, look at the words Abad and Samar, do a, a search on that. Here's what we see in Numbers chapter 3, verse 7 through 8. I'll read this one. And Yahuwah spake unto Moshe, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister unto him, and they shall Keep his charge and the charge of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of the congregation to do the service of the tabernacle. And they shall keep all the instructions of the tabernacle of the congregation and the charge of the children of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. Just so you know, that is uh, dripping soggy wet with the two words Abad and Samar, which is the same command giving to Adam in the Masoretic. All right, so the word abad can be, just to go over this again, could be to labor, work, do work, to work for another, serve another by labor, to serve as subjects, to serve Elohim, to serve with Levitical service. Here are some examples. We see it, uh, the negative and the positive. Exodus chapter 113, the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. So here we see the Egyptians forcing this word abad on the uh, Israelites, the same thing that Adam was given. Exodus 3.12, And he said, Certainly I will be with you, Elohim is speaking here to Moshe, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God, uh, Elohim, at this mountain. And I, I, think the, I think I put that in there because the word worship there is uh, yeah, just to, to serve Elohim. You will serve Elohim at this mountain. Exodus 8.1, then Yahuwah said to Moshe, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahuwah, let my people go that they may serve me. So there's the word again. And of course, the service there is in, in context of receiving the law. Uh, Exodus 29, six days you shall labor and do all your work. And it's the context there again, the same word is always that you are to labor until, until Yahuwah because we are to be priests in his kingdom. You're not to labor to yourself. You're to always to labor for Yahuwah. Now, the Hebrew word samar, keep, in English keep, is mostly used to express the idea of faithfulness to the law or to the covenant. So I'll give you some examples. Exodus 12, 24, And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. Forever. You shall keep this law. Exodus 12, 25, 
And it shall come to pass when ye be come to the land which Yahuwah will give you according to, as he hath promised that ye shall keep this service. So again, as, as priests in the kingdom, they have the role of Adam. They are to be uh, Adam and Eve's uh, little, uh, little creators, uh, images, reflectors of the creator in the promised land. Which, again, we know that they filled to that too. Exodus 13.10, Thou shalt therefore keep the ordinance in his season from year to year. This goes on and on. I have a whole page that says, I don't need to read all these. Let's see if I have any good ones here. Uh, uh, Leviticus 18.5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am Yahuwah. And one more from the same chapter, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, neither any of you, uh, ne neither any of your own nation nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. I like that one because it's like we went over this in First Clement today that, uh, you know, Clement didn't get the memo. He was under the impression that uh, there was one set apart a nation. It was Israel. You needed, you know, it wasn't the Goyim. It was the 71st nation out of the 70 Israel. And here we see that. It's not just being born into the nation. It's even those that the stranger that sojourneth among you, they are to keep it and guard it with their life as well if they want to be counted as set apart. And I think that's all on that commentary. Back to you, Michael. All right, interesting stuff. And uh, hopefully you can elaborate more on Shem School that Katie was asking. I thought that was pretty interesting as well. Um, I'm going to talk about the rivers. So that would be 10 through 15. So um, the river's coming out of Eden. So in 10, KGV, and a river went out of Eden to water the garden. So And from thence it was parted and became into four heads. So one river became into four. So um, I saw an article that said the four names, Mamin, increased, burst, bursting forth, Rapid and fruitfulness, and I'll speak more of that individually in a bit. So, rivers flow downhill. So, Eden is the original high place. I thought that was pretty cool. So, the Hebrew word translated as river is Nahar. According to Brown's, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, Nahar is a stream, river, or underground stream. It comes from the root verb Nahar, meaning to shine, beam, light, burn, be radiant, to flow, and stream. And um, my wife was the one who thought of this. And we were still trying to do a study. We just had no time. But four rivers coming out of Eden, four matriarchs of Israel, both producing life. Maybe you guys can help us with that study. What else? Is there any correlation with that? Um, Zechariah 14.8, And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them towards the eastern sea and half towards the western sea. I don't know, maybe two on each side. There will be summer as well as winter. Living waters. Ezekiel 47, 10. It will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from En Gedi to En Gilim. There will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds. Like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. By the river on its bank, in my opinion, it's talking about Jerusalem, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fall. 
They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Imagine, you just use some leaves to heal. It's probably, if we're post-mail, this already happened, probably. But maybe it is in New Jerusalem. Um, okay, so... Number 11. The KGV says, The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compassed the whole land of Havila, where there is gold. So, with, so the Hebrew word Pishon, give the idea of dispersing, stred, spreading, scattering, whereas the Brown Driver Briggs, um, H6376, increases. So notice that this river flows around or encompasses the whole land of Havila, where there is gold, bedallium, and onyx. Havila and its root, this Hebrew word root, chul, C-H-U-L, are defined as to circle, twist, writhe, travail, dance, or whirl. So, unlike the Tigris and Euphrates, the, which we'll get to in a bit, the, Pi, the Pishon has never been clearly located, at least from what I've seen. It is briefly mentioned together with the Tigris in the wisdom of Sirach. But this reference throws no more light on the location. So, in the Antiquities of the Jews, um, Josephus identifies Pishon as what the Greeks called Ganges and the Gihon as the Nile. So, Josephus thinks Pishon is the Nile. Um, the in the famous quote unquote Rabbi Rashi also identified it with the Nile on the second river. So, oh, wait, no, never mind. 12. And the gold of that land is good. There's bedallium and the onyx stone. So, bedallium is a fragrant gum, much like myrrh. That's interesting, myrrh. It comes from a thorn tree which produces a small particle of resin that appears to tear or liquefy when the sun light shines upon it. I thought that was cool. The special resin in Hebrew literally means to divide, separate, distinguish, or even set apart. The onyx stone, or in Hebrew, shoham, comes from a word that means to blanch or make white. Hmm. So an onyx stone is usually black or dark in color, but it's to make white. So do you recall what the high priest wore on his shoulders? Two onyx stones. So these were connected to the breastplate. And I remember during our Revelation study, I brought this up, and it kind of hit me. Revelation 2, 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Is this an onyx stone where it makes the person white? It cleans the garments of the person. That's what the high priest did. They had the two stones on their breastplate. Is that what he's doing to us? Second river, number 13. The name of the second river is Gihon, the same as it encompasses the whole land of Ethiopia. So Gihon, H1516, translated, break forth, labor to bring forth, with the idea of water gushing out. So um, in Genesis, it's Gihon is encircling the land of Cush, or a name associated with Ethiopia, as the KGV said. This is the reason that Ethiopians have long identified the Gihon with the Abai River, or the Blue Nile, which encircles the former kingdom of Gojam in Ethiopia. So, and I thought this was cool. So, I'm not 100% sure what to make of this, but a little mega, if you recall Moses, which means the one drawn forth from the water, married a Kushite woman, married in Ethiopia. There's got to be something there. <laughs> Maybe it goes in with the 
before Matrix, but even though that was before, that might have been before that. But um, okay, so the name of the third river in the KGB, Tigris, or Tigris, Tigris. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. So normally we quote the Palestinian Targum. I'm going to quote the JPS Targum on the same link. And the name of the third river is Tigris, because it actually says it. That is which goeth toward the east of Hasor, and the fourth river is Euphrates. So the Tigris, or in Hebrew, the Chetakel. This river is said to be going, or quite literally in Hebrew, walking. So the river is walking. Um, the river Euphrates, in Hebrew, it's Parat. That word Parat comes from the word pre, or fruit. So it's fruitful. So if you remember, kind of summarize the names at the beginning, said increasing, bursting forth, rapid, and fruitfulness. Pretty cool. And then, let's see, 15. This is just a simple cross-reference. And Yahuwah took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Palestinian, different. And Yahuwah took the man from the mountain of worship. And that's what Noel said. I did a quick search, and I thought it was Mount Gerizim but it's Mount Zion, where he had been created and made him dwell in the Garden of Eden to do service in the law to keep its commandments. Amazing. And I loved what Noel said about the place of atonement where the priest is. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to stop here. I still have a few, but uh, I'll end it off to Noel. Yeah, I'm going to finish up here myself. I'll I'll try to make this quick as I go over the last notes here. Uh, Verses 16 through 22, I'm not going to repeat those. Uh, you can kind of read them for yourself. But I want you to notice the order of events. Yahuwah commands Adam not to eat of the tree. Then he says afterwards he will create a wife. After the command has been given. Eve was never given the command. She only heard it secondhand from Adam. So when we see Satan tempt Satan, uh, uh, Satan... Satan tempts Satan. When we see Satan tempt Eve, probably, presumably next week or our next session, we will see how he causes her to doubt her husband. It's not just Yahuwah she's doubting. It's now the information that has been supplied to her by her spiritual authority, Adam. That is being called into question, which actually makes a lot of sense considering uh, what happens. I'll just give you a little hint. It's more than just eating fruit. But he doesn't go about creating her yet after the command is given. Adam is then uh, first has him name all the animals. So he says he's going to create a wife for her, a helper. Uh, gives her, gives him a command. Then says, okay, but before I do that, go, go name all the animals. And after naming the animals, he finds not a singer, single helper suitable. Kind of an interesting order. Only afterwards, Yah puts, Yah puts Adam to sleep. And creates a woman from his rib. All right. And then th this is something I did want to touch on tonight. Verses 23 through 24. I'll read these really quickly again. And Adam said, this time and not again is woman created from man. Thus, because she is created from me. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This is uh, this. It is fit to call woman because man was taken from her. Therefore, a man shall leave and be separate from the house of the bed of his father and of his mother. I think that's really interesting there, the bed of. And shall uh, associate with his wife, and both of them shall be one flesh. Now, this is highly debated, and this comes up often about um, 
this idea that a man and woman, when they enter the bed together, that they become one flesh, you know, and this is a mystery. Well, my opinion on this is there is something about, uh, we do see in Leviticus 18.7 that there, there is a, a truth to the idea that uh, seeing the, the wife naked is exposing the man's nakedness. I'll read it really quickly. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is that which. And so what, do, what does it mean to uncover the nakedness of your father? Like, is it saying that I can't see my my own dad naked? No, it, it, it specifies, it says, which is the nakedness of your mother. So it is it is sin for me to uh, have any sexual relations with my mother. Uh, not that I, I feel just icky and gross even saying that, but it happened in the Bible. So it, it's a thing, apparently. Uh, Ham did that with uh, Noah, uh, with Noah's wife. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Okay, so... It doesn't specifically say they're one flesh, though, all right? And this is what I think is happening when it talks about one flesh. And I, I've heard this phrase used time and again at weddings, often from the pastors, that you guys are becoming one flesh now. Usually it's justification. Uh, okay. But but I don't, again, I don't believe that's what it's saying. Adam says, it, uh, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh happened once, but will never happen again. So therefore, it, it in the context here, I can't say I can't say that my wife is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, because Adam's. If I'm quoting Adam, because Adam said it's the fir first and only time that's ever going to happen. So, notice again the order of events in verse 24: A man shall leave the house of the bed of his father and mother. Formerly, he was the one flesh of his father and mother. Did you, did you get that? The father and mother, the man and the woman coming together, they create one flesh through the child. That child is the one flesh of his father and mother. He is to leave his father and mother, right? The, the, the one flesh is to part and take on a wife, and then they will become one flesh. We are seeing the next generation being born. The next child is, when I look at my children, my two sons, and I have another on the way, a, a son or a daughter, that is my wife and I becoming one flesh. Because clearly... They are a combination of my wife and myself. All right. And then one, one last thing to point out here in verse 25, the chapter ends, and saying both of them were wise. I think that's really interesting, okay, because Satan's temptation, as we will see, is telling them that if you eat this, you will become wise. Well, that's a false wisdom because they were already wise at some point. And what is wisdom again? It comes from the Ruach HaKadosh. Uh, so Adam and his wife, they were already wise, but they were not faithful or truthful in their glory. And that's the key word there, glory, that they had glorified bodies. Okay, They're not typical men and women. And we'll get more into that next time, or I will show passages of Adam and Eve being in a glorified, glowing bodies, and they were stripped of that because they were not faithful to those bodies. And that's all I have. Michael, you finish it up. Yes, sir. I only have a little bit left, and then we'll open it up. Um, number 18, KGV says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. Ankylos, Targum. So we've been reading Palestinian mostly. I've quoted JPS. This is the Ankylos. And the Lord God said, It is not right that Adam should be solitary. I will make for him a helper as for his sake. 
or as suited to him, Hebrew, connecto, as his counterpart. So that word connecto means alongside, opposite, a counterpart to him. And easier, I know Pam's done a lot of studies on easier, helper means active intervention on behalf of the other person. So also suitable for him. So where it says, as for his sake, or suited for him, is a compound word that can be translated as in front of him. Implication is that the helper is like the man, but also his opposite, like a mirror image. Interesting. And I remember, if you remember in our wisdom study, Wisdom of Solomon 7.26, for she wisdom is the brightness of the everlasting light, the unspotted mirror, like a wife, of the power of God, and the image of his goodness. Remember, we made the case, Holy Spirit in Luke, power of God, created the Holy Child, same thing. She's the mirror of, just like Eve, the helper is the mirror. All right, so it seems like every study I'm trying to show, or at least, I'm, first of all, I'm surprised, but I'm trying to show these, these church fathers that have these crazy views. <laughs> so Tertullian told his female, female readers that you are the devil's gateway and went on to explain that they were responsible for the death of Christ. On account of your desert punishment for sin that is death even the son of god had to die um in again timing history in 1486 kramer and sprengel sprengler used similar tracks in in the hammer of witches to justify the persecution of witches they were using eve and eve's you know what they what they thought that she you know brought into the world as a as a persecution of witches um, okay, so we'll get to this after the story of the garden is complete next week. Well, she receives the, the name Hawa or Eve. This means living in Hebrew from a root that can also mean snake. So, several early church fathers, including the Clement of Alexander and Eusebius, interpreted the Hebrew Heva as not only the name of Eve, but in a form of female serpent. Again, not saying that's true. That's what these church fathers are saying. So we've got to be careful on putting our theology on, on these church fathers. Um, 20. So, and Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. So I thought this was cool. This is the first occurrence of man without the definite article. So in every instance prior to this verse, we have only known as Adam as the man or ha-hadam. Now he is known by his name, Adam, while naming the animals. That's kind of cool. Seems like he's finally giving a name there. Um, 21. HGV says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. Palestinian Targum. I think Noel read this one. And the Lord God threw a deep slumber upon Adam, and he slept and took one of his ribs. It was the 13th rib the right side and it closes up with one flesh 13th very interesting number um hebrew word for rib can be also side chamber or beam thought that was interesting um now this was a great cross-reference for deep sleep so every study i'm doing a cross-reference of interlinear words you notice i don't have much in genesis but this one i thought was very good Job 33, 14. I've never even really picked up on this. Job says it's a huge book. But for Yah, and it's just a great summary. So 
For Yah does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when the deep sleep falls on people, and word, as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in the ears and terrify them with warnings, to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones, so that their body finds food repulsive, and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing, and their bones, once hidden, now stick out. They draw near to the pit, and their life to the messengers of death. Yet, if, this is amazing, if there is an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright. And he is gracious to that person and says to Yah, he's ministering to him. Spare them, going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. And that this is all the same passage in Job, starting on 14, 33. Then that person could pray to Yah and find favor with him. And they will see Yah's face and shout for joy. It will restore them to full well-being. And they will go to the others and say, I have sinned. I have perverted the right. But I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit, and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. God does all these things to a person twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. This blew me away. It blew me away. So deep sleep, Adam fell into deep sleep. He pulled Eve out of him. But in this one, a deep sleep. Yah can speak to you in your sleep. He can He can chastise you. He can warn you of your life and what you're doing. He can pull you out. Um, he, there's minister angels ministering for you to him, atoning. Not atoning, but at least mediating is the word I'm looking for. To Yah, to give you another chance. They do it two or three times. You have a change of heart. And then look at this. It says it basically shows a testimony. You're going you're gonna to praise Yah throughout all of it, of what you were. All happened from a deep sleep. So... I'm going to be paying attention more, more to my dreams now. Um, two left. KGV 22. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her unto the man. So fashioned or taken in verse 22 is the Hebrew word bana, meaning built. So the sentence could read, and the Lord God built up into a woman the rib which he had taken from man. So it appears, you know, she was not a new species. And then as Noel said... Adam rightly spoke of her as his own flesh, and I thought that was really interesting, and he equated it with children being their own flesh, which totally makes sense. As, as a child, child is born, their two flesh become one. And finally, the last thing I have is KGB 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and they shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Palestinian Targum there says, Therefore a man shall leave and be separate from the house of the bed of his father and his mother. And shall consociate with his wife, and both of them shall be one flesh. I'll do a great job at explaining. Um, that's all I got. Uh, I guess we can open it up, or if no one has any comments on that. Yeah, no, I don't have anything further. So thank you all for sitting through both of these presentations. Um, recon uh, not recognitions. Uh, First Clement, as well as Genesis Targum, Chapter 2. Did you guys have any, any thoughts or observations while going through this? Well, I had an observation, but it was from uh, Clement, and 
it was about uh, you were talking about you know Clement talking about the ranks of you know the soldiers and stuff and I rather liked that chapter because it immediately made me think of the story in Luke um, where the centurion has a servant who's dying and I'll just read a little bit of that it says um, and a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die and when he heard of Yahusha he sent unto him the elders of the Yahudim beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant and when they had come to Yahusha they besought him instantly saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this for he loves our nation and he's built us a synagogue then Yahushua went from them and when he was not far from the house the centurion sent friends to him saying Adonai trouble not yourself for I am not worthy that you you should enter under my roof wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come to you unto you but say in a word and my servant shall be healed for I am also a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Yahushua heard these things, he marveled at him, and turned about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Yasharel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. And I I just thought that was a, you know, if people are misinterpreting, you know, that whole thing with, with Rome and about, you know, being servants of Rome, I look at it more as, you know, just, just obedience in general. And that just sort of ties in with everything we've been talking about, about, about being obedient to Torah and, and, you know, the blessings that it brings. That was a great observation, and you're absolutely correct. You know, I, 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 I was, I've been unfair to Clement on a couple points, and I said in that one chapter that you know I rolled my eyes at that chapter, and it was because of what the scholars were saying on that. But I do agree with you on that. And one thing I was thinking about is, so he's using the 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 military as an example, and if anyone has been in the military, you know anything about it, is that you cannot do anything to raise to the ranks except for hard work and being noticed. Being noticed is key, right, by your superior officers. And you, 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 you start, you know, and eventually, you know, you become a, obviously, if you enter as a private, you know, in the Army, you're never going to rise past, uh, what is it, I guess, sergeant, really. You're never going to become a, a lieutenant or a captain. You have to go through uh, officer school for that. But th the same thing applies. And it, the context he was giving before that is that we are not to – um, to praise ourselves or to put ourselves in authority that we, the authority we're being put in is by others lifting us up and esteeming us uh, and noticing us as, hey, that guy is an amazing teacher. We, you know, or amazing so and so. You know, we should put this guy in this position. This, you know, let's let's raise this guy up to be the shepherd of our congregation. And what he was seeing is. A bunch of bitter people who they want 
one of those coveted positions and it was causing dissension because then they had jealousy of those who were in it and they were, you know, and so on and so forth attacking them. And so I think, yeah, I, I agree that the military that he uses is a great example uh, because it's all, if we all see ourselves as it, Yah's soldiers, then it's up to him to promote us or demote us or whatever. That's beyond our control and we have to accept that fate. I noticed he was quoted. It appeared so. I made the claim, not a claim, but I posed the question that he was quoting a lot from Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews is a mystery author. Is there any way Clement was that author? What do you think about that? He was. He called. You know, he's talking about the footstool. He talked a lot about the priesthood and Melchizedek, which no other canon book does. He talks about the faith of the patriarchs. I think that's Hebrews eleven. Um, what do you think about that? Could he be the author of Hebrews? I don't know. Yeah, so I I would have to that that's a really interesting observation you have. I would have to go through my some of my notes from uh like Holmes what he talks about because he quotes he throws in a lot of quotes and I don't think he quotes from Paul very often or if he does uh, they'll throw in Paul but they'll say, "Well, really this comes from the Old Testament, you know." And it's like, "Okay, well, he, was he really quoting from Paul then?" So that brings up the point that if he if he is quoting from Hebrews a lot then and Paul wrote that then that's maybe the only book he's quoting from my theory is that Hebrews was not written by Paul I, I don't I don't always understand because I, I read Hebrews and it feels so different uh, to me than than Paul uh, Paul's writings even though clearly there are some people in the same circle but when you read the book of Romans, when Paul wrote Romans, he hadn't even been to Rome yet. I think he was on his way to Spain, and he said he was going to stop by on his way to Spain. Eventually, he ended up in, in England, of all places. But he's like, I'll stop by, and he, and he talks about people there in that church. One of them specifically uh, – well, I forgot her name off its uh, – it's on the tip of my tongue, her name. But she was actually uh, Yahusha's financer in the Gospel of Luke. She finances men ministry and she was already there she had established that church also paul talks about in the the letter to the romans he names a guy what's his name another on the tip of my tongue it's peter's father-in-law uh peter's father-in-law was there founded the church of rome he never gets credit we always think that paul founded the church of rome and um it's saying all this is that yes clement was in rome he was the bishop of rome of that church um he was handed that over i think from peter so yeah, if, if Hebrews is an influence on him, that 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 raises eyebrows in a good way. Um, I really like that. You know, the one thing that you guys brought up about the dual creations in Genesis is probably one of the most divisive subjects that you can ever bring up, especially in any Christian chat room. But uh, I I was uh, lucky enough to be in the in-depth discussion that Rob Skiba and Zen Garcia had on that subject when they were studying Genesis. And I mean, it's, it's undeniable. I mean, there are definitely two, you have a general population of people that were created, and then you have a special garden with special plants, special animals, special people. Everything about the Garden of Eden was totally different from the first creation, and people just totally deny that all the time. But it's it's very clear if you read it because none of the dates match up. In, in the second creation or the second book of Genesis, 
the dates and the days on which things were created are totally different than they are on the first, but people will still justify, no, it's just one creation and they're elaborating more in the second than the first. And it's just not true. It's, it's not at all true. I had a question about what you said about Adam and Eve. Yeah, who are you directing that question to? Um, I guess you know. Uh-oh. I'm not sure if I heard correctly, but I thought I had heard Adam say, this time around, the creation of of Eve was bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Did I hear correctly? Because if that's true, it kind of sounds like there was another wife or whatever. Am I correct? Okay, so this is what he says in verses 23 through 24. And Adam said, this time and not again is woman created from man. Uh, that's because Thus, because she is created for me, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So the point I was making now, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with the potential for Lilith. Um, not, you know, I didn't have much. That's, that's a subject that I have seen things over the last year that I have uh, put in a couple of my papers that Lilith appears like in Isaiah and others to be a totally legit demonic being. And, um, you know, I'm open to, but the point I was making is that the saying where my wife would be bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, that would be taking, taken out of context from what Adam is saying, because Adam is saying that this will never happen again. Therefore, I cannot say that my wife is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You know, the, the idea that, you know, sexually we become one flesh. The point is, is that becoming one flesh is creating children that is that's the idea behind that okay that's great there was two words thrown in there that kind of changed the whole matter and i didn't hear those two so thank you very much i've got a question noel have you ever considered have you considered the possibility Adam, the Adam that was in the garden because there's many adams you know but that particular Adam is it possible, and this is my thinking, that he was kind of like, he was basically a hermorphodite. He had all male and female tendencies, and when the father separated the rib from him, he also separated all the female tendencies, and that's why mankind today, normal mankind, okay, the, those of us who are normal, bad word, but anyhow, we are always looking for our other half when we join together, that makes us complete. So, yeah, I mean, I, I've heard you speak of that before, and it's not that I'm against the idea. I am open to the idea, but I would have to see that case be made in Scripture. Um, I, you know, there is the the very interesting comment made by Yahusha in the Gospel of Thomas about men and women becoming uh, women becoming men again. You know, that woman was taken from man, becomes a man again. And then you also see that same quote in Second Clement uh, telling us that Yahushua really did say that. The question is, what did he mean by it? Um, so again, I, I, I can't really comment on that. Uh, the one point I will say, just observationally, that sometimes make me wonder that there is potentially a truth to that um, is in in the natural world, we look out 
and male animals are you know they have like feathered you know plume feathers and they're very colorful and lines with big manes and you know it's all about attracting the woman right you know they're they're beautiful creatures and you look at uh female animals and they're typically brown and plain and the color of bushes and you know that there's reasons for that they have to survive and take care of their children obviously uh but, you know, in the animal kingdom, the man is the one trying to attract the female. They spend all – there's a great documentary out there. Uh, I, I don't remember the name of it now. My wife and I watch it. And the whole documentary is how there are species of birds. There are documentarians who have gone out and, and followed birds around. And the bird's entire purpose in life is to do, like – outrageous things just to attract a woman like they will create their own unique dances and all these kind of things and they will go their whole life and never once will get selected by a woman they will never get to procreate and maybe if they're lucky they will do it once for two or three seconds and that's that's the crown of their life well the reason i say this is because in in amongst humans it's the opposite it, it really is. It's, it's like, it, I don't know if it, it was intended that way or what, but there's a bit of a reversal where women are the ones that, you know, they're the ones that go out there and try to attract a man uh, attention-wise and seduce him, whereas the men are trying to seduce the women in the animal kingdom. So that's the only point that I bring up that I go, huh, well, that's interesting because that's very different. Um, and that may lend a little bit of credence to that theory. So I'm just kind of throwing that out there for you. Uh, but otherwise, I'm. Uh, I just want to make clear to everybody that unless if I see evidence in scripture, uh, that no, I I don't subscribe to the herma, herma, I can't even pronounce it the hermaphrodite uh, theory. So, Katie's asking you something in the chat. Can you address the seven atoms? Yeah. What are the seven? What are the seven atoms? I don't know. What are? I. <laughs> um, did I talk seven. about? No, no, no. A blessed man did. Oh, okay. I I can add, yeah, I can add a little light to that. Uh, when we were when we were doing the study in in the uh, Hebrew, the word Adam simply means mankind, and in the Hebrew, going through with the Aramaic Targum, there were seven. Uh, the The spelling is exactly the same: A D A M, Adam, but the jots and the tittles were all put in different places seven different times given seven different types of adam and adam the one who was in the garden of eden was a actual and the way it was uh, the definition was that he was a special adam according to the jot or the tittle where it was placed on the name but there's actually uh when, when you look in the hebrew there's seven different not and i'm not saying there were seven different men i'm just saying that way it was used throughout Genesis, it, it is spelled using the jot and the tittle seven different ways. I was looking at this uh, parallel that I've seen today that was kind of brought before me, and it has to do with Adam and Eve being the, if you will, the building blocks of humanity. Uh, it's As it says in there that uh, uh, Hava was the mother of all living, uh, we see a parallel of that today with what science has tried to present to us, which I believe is a fallacy. When it says the building blocks for all matter are atoms or atoms and molecules. And when I was looking at these words, 
with great scrutiny and trying to ascertain where they came from, taking them back through different lexicons and everything. It turns out that Atom, A-T-O-M, is a Egyptian deity and that um, the other building block that is said to be a molecule is referencing uh, Molech. And I found that, that that was very interesting. So there seems to be a morphology or a cyclical pattern or a type and shadow of all these things that have, uh, from the very beginning, a mixing and a diluting of these things to where we're presented today with these lies. And I'm going to say quite affirmative that the building blocks of all matters is not in molecules. And I'll, I'll leave people to research that, but I was kind of surprised to see that today. Uh, I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. So if you could, if you could um, sum that up in one sentence, what would, just so I don't misunderstand you. Well, all right, so let me make it uh, as best I can. We know that Adam and Eve fell. It's not going to be one sentence. <laughs> it's maybe one paragraph. Adam and Eve fell, and ever since the fall, there has been given explanation for this. Man has, has tried to rise to uh, the one to present the, the reasoning for this and the control that uh, comes out of that over the rest of mankind. So of course, Satan is pulling the strings behind the scenes with all of this. But that's that's where I see us today is that we have, excuse me, it's more than one paragraph, but today we have atom and molecule as being the building blocks for all the foundation for, for all of matter, when in fact, uh, Yahuwah uh, constructed uh, mankind through the atom and Hava. The beginning. I hope okay. that helps. So, yeah, no, I'm just trying to understand. So, atoms and molecules, uh, building blocks for all matter, but they were, you had talked about how they were Egyptian deities. And then you had said something uh, that you said like a corruption. So, were you implying that the, these, it, just so I understand, the Egyptian deities are a corruption of Adam and Eve? Is that what you were implying? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're trying okay. to give explanation. I think that's what's happened all the way down okay. through history. Okay, so that was that's perfect. Yeah, that was good. And that's the reason I asked. Uh, I was another book I was reading today uh, was a a book called. Well, I, it doesn't matter. It was it was a book written by a uh, a guy who was I guess kind of popular in the in the 20th century because he was a Christian who claimed to be a druid. He was some he was a druidic Christian and he was bringing the whole point how druidism was true Christianity or whatever. But I was kind of interested because I really want to understand some of these points of of the druid uh, religion. And but he said something that was really interesting in there, and um, he said that he now he's saying that you know the original druid was uh, was Seth, the the son of Adam and Eve. And that all religion is a distortion of that. Now, the reason I found this really fascinating is because 
we so often hear these attacks on the Bible that it is really just, you know, stealing from these pagan religions. You know, the whole, you know, Yahusha is Bacchus and Dionysus and, you know, and then Abraham is like a copy of, um, uh, I can't remember who it is, I think in, in the Hindu faith, somebody. Uh, and even like the, you know, all the different cults out there or the religions that would have animal sacrifices, the sacrifice of the bulls and so on and so forth. And his whole point was, is that there was a a true religion, which I would say is the Hebrew faith, uh, and that there were all these corruptions that came down from that from the sons of Seth. And um, and I just wanted to point that out, that I think that that's, that's my worldview, and it's what I would agree with. And, um, and it's why we see so – one of the reasons – of course, the watchers come into play too – but it's one of the reasons why we see so many similarities out there, you know, between Babylon and Egypt with, like, the, the, the mysteries of Isis with, uh, you know, the Chaldean mysteries and the Bacchic and all this kind of stuff. And th they all seem like it's the same god being played over and over and over again. And um, if anyone is to accuse Yahusha of being pagan, I would, I would say, well, it, I guess it really depends on what you believe. Um, if you believe that uh, Yahuwah is true and that his word is true and that he has a son, then, you know, there would naturally, it would only make sense to me, it would make more sense to me than not that there would be corruptions of that from going down throughout history. So, um, I, I tend to agree with that in the, in the sense that um, we looked at this a little bit last week when we talked about the uh, sons of Elohim as being uh, the sons of Seth. And I am in agreement with that because they were attracted to the daughters of men and they took for them wives, although they all whom they chose. What this to me is saying that the wife of Adam was presented to Adam as being a, a suitable, a suitable uh, partner for him, if you will. The word suitable is used there in the scripture. So what is that revealing is that Yahuwah had, had taken from Adam and brought before him a suitable uh, wife or helpmate or however you want to phrase that. And what the sons of uh, Seth had done was they took from the daughters of men, six-day man, if you will, unsuitable wives they they were to be the malchizedek or the priest to all of mankind and they failed in doing that and they did a hail mary pass and took these daughters for themselves there were not suitable helpmates and that was increasing the fall of mankind rather than walk in the role that was assigned to them they they skirted that uh went to the carnal lust of the flesh that has been problematic ever since then. Now, the, the late, the, uh, I'm reversing my words, which means I'm getting tired. The night is getting late. Uh, we've been at this for about three hours now. Does anyone else have any thoughts on anything we read in Genesis chapter two or, of course, first Clement before we close shop tonight? If not, that's okay. I hope I hope everyone enjoyed this. And I know Michael puts in a lot of work on his end on his commentary. And I always love hearing it in his perspective. And um, I hope you guys enjoy you know what I put in this as well. 
Um, obviously, hopefully you guys do. You guys keep showing up week after week, and I love that you guys are here, and I would love to hear you guys' thoughts on this as well. And just make sure of that in, in future, if you guys want, like next week when you come in, take notes. And it's one of the great things about being here live versus watching this on YouTube, and all you can do is you know send in notes to the complaint department in the uh, comments section, which a lot of people do. But you know you can take notes and, and refer back to them uh, during the Q&A uh, roundtable. But, Michael, is there anything else you wanted to add? Uh, nothing. Enjoyed it. Hope you guys enjoyed it as well. All right. Well, we will do this again next week. And I say that, you know, my wife will be 40 weeks pregnant. But I kind of, I'm feeling like we're probably going to do this again next week. So, uh, you know, just plan on being here unless if I put on a notice that uh, it's, it's labor time. And we'll be back doing this again. Shabbat Shalom one last time, everybody, and I'm signing out for the night. Shalom, everyone.